I didn't grow up in the States, as many of you know, and to me, the word awesome seems like a very American word to me. I don't feel like the place where I grew up or England where I went to boarding school, anyone said awesome. And so really, my first experience of awesome was watching The Simpsons when Bart would say, awesome, dude, and that seemed just quintessentially American to me. And uh, the Americanness and uh, prevalency of awesome took it to a new level with the Lego movie, everything is awesome, everything is cool when you're part of a team, everything is awesome when you're living the dream. And awesome uh, just feels like is everywhere in our vernacular now. I remember having a friend who, if you asked him, how are you, his typical answer was, living the dream, which I don't know, I don't know if any of you answer that way, but it particularly annoyed me because such a non-answer to me. And I know when we say fine, that's a non-answer as well, but uh, living the dream feels like a falsely positive non-answer. And I'm like, are you really living the dream? Okay, what's really going on? Those are the questions that me and my pastor mind goes through in my head when someone says they're living the dream. Everything is awesome. That's what it sounds like. It doesn't sound like what's really going on. And it almost seems like this word awesome then just doesn't have any meaning anymore. It's just, it is. It's just fine, whatever. And if we look up the dictionary, awesome technically means extremely impressive or daunting, inspiring great admiration, apprehension, or fear. And so then to me to say God is awesome would be the very definition of what awesome means rather than the Lego movie's definition. And so as we look at today's passage, we are going to be come face to face with the awesome God and to see the awesomeness of God in the sense of the admiration, the awe, and even the fear that it brings out in us and it should inspire in us. And as we've been looking at doubts and skepticism in the midst of a broken world as we go through suffering, I hope what really comes out in today's message as we hear uh, Habakkuk's him of response to God's answer that what we will see is that we are to be in awe of the awesome God because he will deliver us from suffering. Be in awe of the awesome God because he will deliver us from suffering. Um, I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier. I think there is this reality that we want to bring God low because it just makes it a little bit easier for us to manage if we can just tame God a little bit, make him not as big and mysterious um, as he is described in scripture, then maybe we think we could approach him. And there's something very understandable about that. And yet at the same time, that is not who God has revealed himself to be in scripture or even in creation. In his handiwork in creation, we see surely it is an awesome God who has created all of this. And certainly in scripture, what is the picture that's painted for us is one of an awesome God. So let's dive into today's passage and we'll see, we'll see a picture of, of the awesome God displayed. The first verse says this, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Uh, this is actually helpful. This is, sometimes it's not helpful, but this is helpful. And prayer could really be uh, translated or interpreted as hymn. And we know really it's a hymn because of this phrase, according to Shigianoth. Shigianoth's definition is this, it's, uh, it's essentially a wild and passionate song, or more specifically, a, a definition would be, the word denotes a lyrical poem composed under strong mental emotion, a song of impassioned imagination accompanied with suitable music. And so it's helpful for us as we hear these words, 
that Habakkuk sings praise to God, that this is no sad song. This is a wild and passionate song of response, hymn of response to God. And so let's hear a little bit of what Habakkuk sings here. Verse 2, he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Again, he's introducing himself in an autobiographical kind of way, this, this hymn that he's about to launch into. And he's coming now, as he says, in awe of God. He had brought these complaints to God. He had questioned God's justice. He had questioned whether God cares. He had questioned whether God was listening. And now he comes in awe of God. And again, it's this wild, passionate, poetic song expressing his feelings. I don't know if you guys have watched any of these, but the uh, sixth to ninth graders in church right now in their ed hour going through the, the Bible Project videos. And they're really excellent videos, whether you're young or old. I would recommend it highly for adults as well. I find myself learning lots myself when I watch them. And what they're going through literally right now, it's appropriate that we're, this is uh, the genre we're looking at too, is 30% of the Bible is poetry. And you have to ask the question, why did the Lord put 30% of the Bible as poetry? And really, it's, it's, it's this idea of that poetry has this ability to fire up our imagination and bring deeper meaning to the text and to the content um, and to drive that truth home through our experience of what the word is saying. And so poetry has, is this particular genre that invites us to read it again and again and to explore the meaning of what is being said, to memorize it and to recite it and to ask the Lord to bring deeper meaning and understanding uh, through that uh, Repetition and recitation. I think it is the reason why we love the book of Psalms. I mean, I think in general, Jews and Christians through the years have loved the book of Psalms because of the nature of how it can apply to our everyday lives. And it brings, the, it brings God's truth home. And we, it just reminds us, we, if you're like a super theological person, you need to remember we all need songs and poems in our life, and God gives us songs and poems in Scripture in order to convey truth to us. And so we're in the midst of this song, this hymn, this poem that Habakkuk is singing to God and to bring home um, his response. And really, he's drawing upon, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but he's drawing upon imagery from Scripture itself as he sings to God. Uh, imagery of God's appearances at the Exodus in Egypt, of God's appearances at giving the covenant law at Sinai through Moses, and and giving uh, and God's appearances in his his uh, imagery of that during the conquest of Canaan. And so, we've heard some of it read, and I think I'll read it again. I was kind of wavering on that, but I think it's good good to hear it again. As as we said, poetry is good to be heard again. So from verse three. God from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. 
His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Habakkuk is calling all of us to remember God's redemptive events, his acts of redemption in history. And certainly the the prototypical event in the Old Testament was God's deliverance of Israel from slavery under the Egyptians. And that this song of Habakkuk was supposed to bring back these events of God being at work in their history, the way he had delivered them time and time again. And it should have recalled to them some other songs. And maybe in particular, I'll read a few verses, song, this is the very song that Moses sang after they were delivered from Pharaoh's army as they were swept up by the Red Sea at the Lord's hand. So a few verses from that song. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Maybe for you as Christians, if that is your faith as you've joined us today, a song that comes to mind is a song in Ephesians. This song in Ephesians is a song of thanksgiving that Paul wrote, known as the worst run-on sentence in the Bible. And I will try to do this run-on sentence because God calls us as Christians to look back at their most important redemptive event in our lives, and that is Christ's work on the cross and his work throughout history to redeem us to himself. So hear this song that Paul sings for all of us. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of this inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he has brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. One sentence, one sentence 
of incredible praise to God, a hymn of praise to God. We are called to remember God's great redemptive events in the times of our great suffering. And Habakkuk brings to his own mind and to his listeners' ears God's awesomeness in delivering from suffering and from sin. And so we are called in the same way to remember in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our darkness, to remember that we do have a God who delivers. Yes, we still wait for him to complete his work. Yes, we still live in what we call the already not yet. Already we have everything in Christ. And at the same time, not yet is it fully completed his work. We await his return. And we hear from Habakkuk, again, from his own experience, wrap up his hymn with this verse in verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. This hymn that Habakkuk sings is book-ended by these references of Habakkuk to himself, to his own experiences, of his own feelings, expressing this awe of the awesomeness of God to deliver, an awesomeness that he feels throughout his body, shook to the very core. But it is this experience of the awesomeness of God that enables Habakkuk to quietly wait. Notice the great tension, contrast in that. He had just sung this wild and passionate song about the awesomeness of God. And he ends with this verse, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble, for the day of judgment that God will bring against those Habakkuk had complained against. How are you doing? Waiting for the Lord for that day when he will bring to an end all evil and suffering. Is not that the root of all of our complaints when we are hurting, when we question God, when we judge God, when we say, God, why aren't you doing anything? And yet we look at the awesomeness of God and he says, trust me. Look at what I've done already and trust that I will bring it to completion. Quietly wait upon God to be the judge. And we see it at the end of Scripture in the book of Revelation. You heard it read earlier. This image of the divine warrior that is shown throughout Scripture. And let's be honest, we are not super psyched about reading about the divine warrior in our day and age. Many of the, many of the verses that were read today, some might say, this God seems quite violent. And we have, I believe we have to ask our, ourselves as, as believers, if we say we want justice, then where will this justice come from? And how will this justice be done? Because God promises to bring justice. And he says he will bring it in the most awe-inspiring way that will shake us to our bones. Do we really want justice? As we mentioned in the first week of this series, it's a scary thing to ask for the justice of God. 
He is awesome in power and completely just, completely holy. I think the reality is we want justice. But we don't want God's justice. We want justice that we can bring about ourselves. The justice that we can bring about ourselves is a lot easier because we can point our fingers at others who have offended our sense of justice and yet allow ourselves a little more leeway in whether we have fulfilled that sense of justice ourselves. We want deliverance, but we would prefer that deliverance doesn't hold us personally accountable in the way that we have offended the world or God himself. We look, and this is something I, I got just from a conversation with Carrie a couple, uh, last week, that in our conversation, it was just reminded of that the very original sin that was committed by Adam and Eve wasn't just about eating some fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. It was that Adam and Eve wanted to be the definer of right and wrong, they wanted to be the judge of right and wrong, and they also wanted to be the executor of what is wrong. And that's all of us. We are all tempted towards wanting to be the definer of what is right and wrong rather than God, the judge of what is right and wrong rather than God, and the executor of right and wrong. And it's not that we can't have a sense of justice. And it's not that we can't have opinions about what is right or wrong. It is that we must do so in submission to God's revelation of right and wrong and trust him ultimately to be the one who will judge and make all things right. That it is not in our hands to do so. And I think it just has been true always. And if you look throughout scripture, you'll see, if you look throughout history, you'll see it that Humankind has always struggled with this. And yet in our reality today, in a social media-driven world, um, our desire to execute those who we believe are wrong can reach a different level or different expression on the internet. And somehow the way we do it on the internet then permeates the way we do our relationships. I read an article in the New York Times just this, um, not too long ago, it was, published at the end of October. It was, it's called Tales from the Teenage Cancel Culture. And I'll just read a section of it. And you don't even need to know what the drama was exactly, except it was, it was a group of college students in New York, and the majority of them were more progressive-minded, and one of the roommates of this group of friends was a, a Trump supporter. And you know they didn't really like this guy, but he was still part of the group, and and this guy who was a Trump supporter said, you know, was basically, you know, acted in ways that was not very kind and said things that weren't very nice. And this is what happened as a result. Um, Mike is the guy who was roommates with, um, he's just called D. He's called D in this article. His name is not given. So D is the guy who was the Trump supporter and, and Mike is the roommate. Even before this, we could tell if I weren't roommates with him, we wouldn't have been friends, Mike said. So that was the breaking point for me. Him saying that, him saying that, just you know, saying something negative. Some, him saying that when I was sticking up for him, D left an apology on Mike's desk, which mostly tried to justify his actions. Mike said, "That said in my mind that he didn't really feel bad about what he did. He said he just felt bad for himself 
that he would be looked at in a different light. A couple of days later, Phoebe, Mike, and Dee, there's a group of the, in the group, sat down and Dee repeated the apology. Phoebe and Mike heard him out but said it didn't clear him of wrongdoing and that he would have to demonstrate that he was different now. Both said that while Deer appeared sad about losing his friends, tearing up during the discussion, their discussion, he didn't show remorse. Other friends didn't accept the apology. We, we wouldn't tolerate it anymore. We cut him out of our lives, Phoebe said. Thus canceled, Dee moved from sadness to frustration and anger. Phoebe said, he grew very bitter, she said. She noticed that he had unfollowed and blocked the group on Snapchat and other social media a few weeks later. He did feel bullied by this whole canceled idea, she said. But in this case, no one felt bad doing it because he didn't really take responsibility for a lot of the things he said. It honestly broke my heart when I read this, and there were like five other stories um, that, came, that came along in this article. I mean, I think the reality is we all say offensive things at some point or another, and even if we have a friend who is super offensive, by, by you know, widely accepted standards. The question is, what does forgiveness look like? What, what leeway and time do we have to change before we get cut out? Certainly, it didn't take cancel culture to come along that we have been cutting people out of our lives that we didn't really like or get along with. I think it is important for us, particularly if we're coming at it from a Christian perspective, trying to be faithful to what God teaches in Scripture, we recognize, yes, boycotting in general is a powerful form of protest. It's true that sometimes you have to distance yourselves from someone who may have hurt you or abused you time and time again. But canceling someone for their beliefs and ideas, cutting them out, functionally or in reality, because of their beliefs. It has to be seen as untenable for our future as a society, right? There's so many different opinions. And if we just all offend each other and then cut each other out, where will our society go? And again, as Christians, we're reminded Jesus' word, love your enemies, Chapter 5, verse 46 in Matthew, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? It just points that we've struggled for eons as human beings. We want to be the definer of what is right and wrong, the judge of what is right and wrong, and the executor of what is wrong. Catholic theologian Richard Rohr said, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is control. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is control. That's right on because faith is not just about believing in God. Scripture itself says, even the demons believe and they shudder. But the demons do not trust Jesus. We are not called just to believe the right things about God. We are called to trust and depend on him, to trust and not control. And it is the hardest thing in the midst of doubts 
and struggle and suffering to trust rather than to take control, take matters into our own hands. We're always tempted to want to take back control from God, take complete control even. We would rather not have to trust God or anyone. And so again, we tame God and we make God small and manageable and yet God reveals himself that we, he can't be put in a box. He is the awesome God who is also awesome enough to deliver us from the suffering that we cry out to him about. Habakkuk teaches us that the antidote to that desire to be in control is to see the largeness of God, to see the awesomeness of God, to see that we are to be in awe of that God, to relinquish control to him and to trust him. In verse 13 of this chapter, it says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. This phrase, you went out, is painting this picture that God is the one who dwells in his temple, yet he is listening, he hears the cries of his people, and he will come out from his temple to deliver his people from suffering, from their cries for help. And this wording specifically says, for the salvation of your anointed, and it points us to Christ himself, because the anointed one is the one who was promised along the Davidic line. And we know in scripture that the fulfillment of that promised one is Jesus Christ himself, a descendant of David, yet born of God, son of God himself, the only begotten son of God who came to deliver us from our sin and the sins of the world, to take justice upon his own back so that we might be restored and renewed to him. And we've talked about it recently. And the hope is not just that he comes out from his temple and then withdraws again, but the work that he is doing is that he is going to make this earth new again. He will make this earth his temple. And we trust in this anointed one that is promised even here in Habakkuk. We trust in Jesus Christ as that fulfillment. We look back to our redemption story in Jesus And we trust as we look forward to his return. Again, in the very midst of our own struggles and doubts and darkness, we can trust because he is an awesome God who is worthy of our all and our worship and our trust. I don't know what you're going through in your life. I don't know what injustice you have faced I don't know what hurt you're going through. I don't know what loved ones you have lost recently. I know whenever I lose a loved one, I remember this phrase that I don't even remember what theologian said, but he says, death is an intrusion on God's design. Death is an intrusion on God's design. Sin is an intrusion of God's design. Evil is an intrusion on God's design. Suffering is an intrusion on God's design. 
God is at work to eradicate these things, and he is able and willing to do so because that is his plan for creation and humanity. And He calls us to quietly wait for he, the awesome God, to bring that work to an end. Will you trust him in the midst of your own struggle that he will come through and deliver us? I pray that as you lean into Jesus, as you see his love for you, that you will be enabled to trust even in the darkest times. Let's pray.